by the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And you knew where you were then. <laughs> girls were girls and men were men. <laughs> Mister, we could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. G.R.O.L.A.S.L. Red Great. Those were the days. Oh, man. Oh, Edith, why did you skip those singing lessons? <laughs> so for those listeners who are a little younger, which we know we have some, uh... That was the theme song from a 70s sitcom called All in the Family. And Carol O'Connor was the guy. uh, And what? I don't remember the name of the actress that played next to him. Um, Pretty popular Mm. in the 70s. Uh, Dave and I watched that a lot growing up. Pretty brutal, actually. That that was, uh, yeah. They... They would never be able to release something like that now. No, no. It was very un-PC, lots of, uh, you know, bigotry and and prejudice, and and the family was always contentious and yelling at each other. And That's why we watched it, I think, just to remind ourselves of our own lovely situation at home. You know, I think it it helped us uh, because it was kind of... It made it feel like our home wasn't as like everybody's house Abby. was like this, right? Kind wasn't of as Abbey normal as yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, uh, why? Because the name of the show again was All in the Family, and that's the name of our episode. Ah, nice little correlation there, huh, Dave? Mm, that's a nice one. So I just, yeah, I just remember laughing every time that intro song, the way she just goes. Way off into the stratosphere, way off key, way off note, just, just, oh, God. (laughs) And, you know, it's a good commentary. If you listen to the lyrics, Mm. there's some, some, uh, yeah, a little bit of commentary on the times, even in the lyrics. Okay, enough. That's right. So before we jump into this episode, uh, more than that theme song and the title, Dave and I promised you guys we'd give you a couple quick quotes from Gordon Hinckley from our last episode. We, we kind of ran out of time. We had a couple more quotes from interviews that we thought were pretty great uh, to share. It's about this belief that's taught in the church that uh, as man is, is the little couplet, as man is, God uh, wait once was, right? And as God is, mm-hmm. man may become. So this idea of becoming gods and that even God himself was once a man, and that as a God, he's he's an exalted man, is uh, the teaching of Joseph Smith. And so a couple quotes here really fast. Um, so the uh, <clears throat> in the Time Magazine quote, so let's jump back and read that for you guys. On whether his church still holds that God the Father was once a man, he, this is Gordon Hinckley, sounded uncertain. Quote, I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. I understand the philosophical background behind it, but I don't know a lot about it, and I don't think others know a lot about it. 
philosophical. Oh, yeah. Shit. Yeah. I. Yeah. So there's the prophet. Well, it, yeah. Yeah. It just says it. It's what do you need to say about that? He said it all himself. Yeah. Exactly. And then <laughs> which was nothing. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and then there's a couple question Q and A Q and A thing in the San Francisco Chronicle. So question. There are some significant differences in your beliefs. For instance, don't Mormons believe that God was once a man? Answer, I wouldn't say that. There was a little <laughs> couplet coined, quote, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. Now that's more of a couplet than anything else. That gets into some pretty deep theology that we don't know very much about. Uh, uh, okay. Has he, has he got a mouse in his pocket? Yeah. Who's the we? I <laughs> And, and then the quest, the final question. So you're saying the church is still struggling to understand this? That's a great way to ask it. Answer. Well, as God is, man may become. We believe in eternal progression very strongly. We believe that the glory of God is intelligence, and whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. Knowledge, learning is an eternal thing. And for that reason, we stress education. We're trying to do all we can to make our people the, uh, what? The a uh, blessed, best, brightest people that we can. Okay. Um, so, not the other part, though. God was once a man. Um, and I just think it's hilarious. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so, well, right before his death... Joseph Smith gave a sermon uh, at a funeral for a man named King Follett, and yeah. this is where he dispensed this new idea. He had whispered about it before the sermon, but then he just unleashed it, mm -hmm. uh, the whole thing right there in your face. So if you're interested, look up King Follett sermon by Joseph Smith, 1844, mm -hmm. and there it is. There you'll find that doctrine. And Follett is two L's and two T's, is that right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, right there at the funeral, he espoused this uh, doctrine. And so, I don't know about it. I wouldn't say that. That Are you kidding me? First of all, you're the prophet. You should know all this stuff, like, on the spot, right? Be able yeah. to get help from God and revelation from God in the hour that you need, quote-unquote, big phrase in the church. Uh, you should know this stuff, but reverse, you say, yeah, anyway, we don't want to get further into that. <laughs> it's just crazy. Well, yeah. Joseph Smith lost his life uh, for two two main reasons, polygamy and this doctrine. Yeah, that's which, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It yeah. is. Plus, I think what landed him in the prison, or the charge was destroying the printing press, right? Yeah. So that was... That's true. Yeah, federal crime. Yeah. Um, so, uh, all in the family, what are we talking about? Well, let me introduce the, the general concept here of why we would have an episode on this. So, the claim by the church, one of the church's key doctrines, actually, uh, and again, sets it apart from a lot of other churches, is that people are called into leadership positions by revelation, Okay. Uh, actually, not even just leadership positions. Every calling down to the little ward level, neighborhood level, is supposedly received by revelation from God. David, even if you're yeah. called to clean the building, which yeah. is free labor, by the way, that was a revelation. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 
Uh, and we've had clever little, you know, speaking of clever couplets uh, or whatever in the church, even when we were active, right? Uh, little things like, well, I don't know if that was revelation as much as desperation, perspiration, yeah. and what was the other Asian? Uh, um, I don't know. Point being, yeah, yeah we, we kind of even knew as active members that a lot of times that was bullshit. It was just out of need rather than you know, revelation, or there's other reasons, especially as you climb up leadership. But uh, the idea here is, uh, look, people are called by revelation, acting through the medium of the priesthood authority, getting inspiration or the spirit of discernment, etc. The reality is that people select not whom, quote, the Lord wants, unquote, for a calling, but those whom they favor, like, and trust. And so those who they dislike, disfavor, and distrust are not really given the light of day, especially for the higher callings in the church. So, you know, outwardly, this, this term, you know, in terms of rhetoric, it's hidden, but implicitly, this social behavior in the church is very real. And, and especially, again, as you get higher in the church. And so there's a few things going on, and Dave has a fun list at the end here that, that he'll share with you as well about this concept. And what you really see in the church as you research it, especially as you get into the upper leadership, so the 70s, the apostles, the prophet himself and his counselors, rather than Revelation, you see a few concepts that you guys might be familiar with. One is cronyism. So people who, again, back to trust, favor, your friends. Uh, in the church, that also includes yes-men, as we call them. Uh, people who don't question authority, they just, yep, yep, do it, complete obedience, you know, and, and they can be relied upon. Uh, that's this cronyism concept. Nepotism, definitely, which has to do with family relationships. We'll talk about some of that. Oligarchy. Uh, well, this all creates an oligarchy, which is ruled by a few. That should probably be the last on the list here, because we also have a plutocracy in many cases in the church, which is ruled by the rich, especially in local areas. So if you look at stake presidents, for example, that's about when that concept starts, generally speaking, in the church. If you're well-to-do, you got you know, you got things under control, much, uh, you know, you're heavily educated, etc. Much higher chance of getting mm -hmm. getting in there. And there's a quote, Dave, I want to share from Jay Golden Kimball, and then we'll we'll jump it into the church in the news here. Um, Some people say, says Jay Golden Kimball, that a person receives a position in this church through revelation, and others say they get it through inspiration, but I say they get it through relation. <laughs> That's another shun. Uh, he says, if I hadn't been related to Heber C. Kimball, I wouldn't have been a damn thing in this church. <laughs> Good old Jay Golden. Oh, I Hope love it. As it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, great. I think he, was he the only high authority in the church, at least that was well known, that used to swear all the time? I I, think, I can't think yeah. of any others that we know of. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing behind the 
behind yeah. the curtain as it were sure but yeah he was a funny man he was sent down here where i'm at to saint george to survey some land he came back to salt lake to report on what he found and he's describing some of the topography and some of the waterways and streams and one of the general authorities says well how big was that stream he says i don't know i could piss across it <laughs> That gives you an idea of where he was coming from. Yeah, and I think he was even known, like, in general conference at the pulpit to drop swear words and, you know, God damn it and son of a bitch and all this <laughs> shit. It was, it was like... <laughs> finally, finally some entertainment at conference. Uh, no kidding. Hey, guys, uh, let's talk about a little LDS church in the news. The news. So you'll recall an episode not long ago that we did called Poor No More about this hundred billion thing. Uh, so, little thing in the Salt Lake Tribune t- today. LDS Church kept the lid on its hundred billion dollar fund for fear tithing receipts would fall, account boss tells Wall Street Journal. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, let me just read it, some tidbits here, uh, which go right along with the point. Latter-day Saint officials kept the size of the church's $100 billion billion investment reserve secret for fear that public knowledge of the fund's wealth might discourage members from paying tithing, according to top executive who oversees the account. He probably doesn't oversee it anymore. (laughs) I'm thinking he got fired, man. Uh, For members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, tithing, donating 10% of one's income to the faith, quote, is more of a sense of commitment than it is the church needing the money, unquote. Well, right. So this is Roger Clark, head of Ensign Peak Advisors, which manages the denomination's investing holdings. Quote, so they never wanted to be in a position where people felt like, you know, they shouldn't make a contribution, Clark said. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, wow. What else do you say to that? Yeah, that's pretty obvious. There it is. Yeah, it's exactly what we said. And here's a guy, I'm guessing he's probably Mormon, and he's basically admitting it. Yeah, the church doesn't really need money anymore. This is just more, you know, we want people to donate as a representation of their faith and their commitment. Well, we were we were told that 30 and 40 years ago. Uh, the church doesn't need your money. The Lord doesn't need your money. But you need the opportunity to pay, to sacrifice. Oh, oh your kids are going without food? Yeah, <laughs> That's a lower principle. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Well, uh, to get further along with some of the juicy tidbits, let's also do our little segment, Dave. Um, for your information. <laughs> All right. Where were we? Okay, 1888. So the saints have been in the valley 41 years. Whoo. Mm. Uh, right after they landed on, again, was it the Mayflower? Anyway, uh, <laughs> they sent... As we've talked about, they sent people out to develop areas around Salt Lake. And so they started working on the Manti Temple pretty early on. Mm -hmm. May 17th, 1888, 
at the dedication of the Manti Temple, Wilfred Woodruff says, we are not going to stop the practice of plural marriage until the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, but of course, that's only going to be in a few years from then. So maybe what he said was semi-correct. Uh, and we've got another one in a few, just in a minute here, another one almost just like that. By the way, at that dedication of the Manti Temple, while in the temple, Woodruff consecrated upon the altar the brown seer stone that Joseph Smith found, check this, by revelation some 30 feet under the ground. Oh, so he no. Dug, he dug that well for Willard Chase because of revelation. Oh, no. I never heard that before. <laughs> and that was long before this idea of the Book of Mormon, right? And yeah, we know he anything. used, yeah, we know he used that same stone in a hat, by the way, same technique to hunt for treasure and lost items, and he would have people pay him, and he never found anything, unfortunately, for them. Yep, I never, guess. never. <laughs> okay, right. a little more on this conflict between the U.S. government and the church. October 12th, Wilford Woodruff and Apostles vote to allow Idaho Mormons to be excommunicated <laughs> in order to vote. They regret this decision within three weeks. <laughs> Was that a revelation as well? Oh, okay. That sounds like the Same LGBTQ month. thing. Uh, oops. Yeah. Let's, let's retract Oopsie. that. <laughs> Course correction. October 23rd, Wilfred Woodruff and Apostles approved sending $20,000 to bribe Democratic members of Congress to help the Utah Mormon cause. There it is again. Oh, bribery. Oh. Okay, let's shift gears here. The 26th of November, Apostle Lorenzo Snow speaks concerning Newell K. Whitney and his wife, H.C. Kimball, who he said, the prophet Joseph Smith told his sister, Eliza R. Snow, that they were descendants of the Savior. What the hell does uh, that even mean? Uh, that, I guess that but gets into, know, yeah, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> that speaks to the royal blood thing, though, and that's what we're going to get into. Oh, that's Bloodlines. a great point. Yeah, great point. Yeah. And so, it suggests, obviously, that Jesus was actually married, that whole theory. And and then the, this suggests that he had kids. So, yeah. All right. There you go. Well, okay. that sounds like that uh, brown he did that movie and the book and the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. On on uh, the bloodline of uh, Christ, mm -hmm. and through Mary Magdalene or whatever that was. Right. Uh, yeah, it's very important, and we'll get into uh, some information on how that came about, where that idea came from. Okay, 1889. Just a couple here. February 27th, LDS political newspaper Salt Lake Herald's article entitled "Failed Marriages." In 1870, Utah had second highest rate of divorce out of all the states and territories. Oh, wow. Ah, eternal families. <laughs> or maybe not so eternal. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's... I, I brought that up in a high priest group meeting one day, and this old bat son of a bitch <laughs> guy that pissed, pissed me off. He goes, I'm going to need to see a citation on that. I'm like... Here's the article. I'm holding it in my hand, dumbass. If you can't believe it, what does that say about your open-mindedness, your willingness to accept the truth of this? Oh, I can't believe the church has as many divorces as the rest of the world. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it always has. Apparently. Always has. One more. April conference. Okay, so April 7th, it's a general conference. Hmm. They sustain Wilfred Woodruff as church president with George Q. Cannon, Joseph S. Smith as counselors. They are not set apart or ordained. Again. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, eh, that's that's you know, that's not necessary. That's just a that's just a ceremony. It's a trivial thing, yeah. like like President Hinckley saying, "Ah, oh, it's more of a couplet, you know, some kind of." Yeah. Okay. Shall we get into uh, some more on family relationships? Are we ready for that? Yeah, I think so. Right. So, so where did this idea come from? I mean, were you going to share that first, Dave? And then uh, it's about. I'm going to read an introduction. What we're going to do, thank God for D. Michael Quinn. No kidding. We're going to go to chapter five of his book, Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power, and read a section on family relationships. So in the introduction to this, he, he tells you where he's going with it mm -hmm. and the order. Of the social characteristics of the men who comprised the Mormon hierarchy during the first hundred years, 1832 to 1932, the most complex and perhaps the most significant were the family relationships of these men. At a primary level were kinship ties. He, now, he calls it kinship, and that would be... Nepotism. Nepotism. Yeah. Yes. No less significant were marriage connections. That's the second part. Same thing. These bonds fundamentally reinforced the religious affinity of men who shared a church calling. Convoluted relationships made the Mormon hierarchy an extended family, and extensive family connections persist among the LDS general authorities today. So kinship, marriage, and then the, the state of the church today. So... <clears throat> He goes back to the Old Testament and even the Book of Mormon, where the idea that all members thought of themselves as descended from a common ancestor. So that, right. was, that was well known and taught. Right. But then with Smith, Smith goes and takes it further, and he's going to go to uh, the Doctrine and Covenants. He's got four sec or verses there. I'm going to read just one from section 107. Mm-hmm which was a revelation on priesthood, uh, verse 39, DNC 107. It is the duty of the 12 in all large branches of the church to ordain evangelical ministers <laughs> as they shall be designated unto them by revelation. Hmm. And now let's just turn that statement right on its head in the next verse. Okay. The order of this priesthood was confirmed to be handed down from father to son and rightly belongs to the literal descendants of the chosen seed to whom the promises were made. Okay, so... But it's, but it's revelation. <laughs> schizophrenia again, right? So the one Just, verse, it's all about yeah. revelation, no matter who the person is, right? Second verse, oh, it's all about family. Um. All right. <laughs> yeah, perfectly clear. Yeah. Okay, so now I've got a couple quotes from the early leaders of the church that bring this to light. Brigham Young, for instance, said, I am entitled to the keys of the priesthood according to lineage and blood. So is Brother Heber C. Kimball and many others. Smith clearly established such kinship appointments as an accepted practice. Now think about this. 
this is well-known church history, by the way. During uh -huh. his church presidency, he gave general authority positions to his father, his uncle, two of his brothers, and his first cousin. Moreover, the Quorum of the Twelve, established in 1835, was intended to include three sets of brothers. He was trying to mimic the early Twelve in the New Testament, is what he was doing. Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. Okay, President Young confided to members of the 12, and I read these quotes in two earlier podcasts. Here's what he told them. I'm going to tell you something I've never before mentioned to any other person. I've ordained my sons, Joseph A. Brigham and John W. Apostles and my counselors. <laughs> do you remember me reading those? I do. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he admitted it. At least he didn't keep it a secret. Wow, that's... Mm. Ooh. Subsequent presidents advanced their own sons to various positions. And then he, it just goes on and on. But I want to pull this one out where uh, Joseph Smith tells apostles Orson and Parley Pratt that by vision, he had learned that their families and his all sprang from the same man a few generations ago. Smith and the Pratt brothers were sixth cousins. He'd learned by revelation, it was well known that he had his genealogy back five generations that was available to him. Mm -hmm. So that's a revelation when you have a piece of paper that you can <laughs> read from that tells you who your ancestors were. Okay, I'm glad I'm buzzing right through this. That uh, D. Michael Quinn does a fantastic job. Among other things, he's got a genealogical chart on two family lines. Phineas Ho, how I should say, H-A-W-E, how, yep. and Asel Smith, which was the grandfather of Joseph Smith Sr. And so he goes all the way through how Brigham Young came from John Young and Abigail Howe and, and the, the Richards, a well-known family in the church. And then on Joseph's side, of course, it continued through Hiram Smith, uh, right. mainly uh -huh. Joseph F. Smith and then joseph f smith jr which we'll talk about in a minute was and fielding so, was fielding the middle name of joseph fielding smith i assume fielding was a surname in there somewhere is yes. where fielding yes, came it, from and then joseph f i always got confused joseph f was joseph fielding smith's son right joseph, the, uh, reverse that okay joseph f smith wasn't the f still fielding it was. Okay. It was. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you dis distinguish the two. Joseph okay. F. was the, the father, father. And, and Fielding uh, was the... Okay. So what Michael has done here, D. Michael Quinn, he's got six tables. There's no way we can go through this information mm. extensively, but uh, let me just read. I said I would mention something about Joseph F. Smith, and here, here's a little bit there. What happened is this nepotism was very heavy first at the first of the church, and then it kind of went away a little bit, mm -hmm. and then it came back strong with Joseph F. Smith. Uh, disenchantment with LDS President Joseph F. Smith's nepotism reached a climax in 1910. Joseph Fielding Smith's biography by his son comments that some regarded his father's appointment as a heavy case of nepotism. Mm. A former secretary to the first presidency has recently referred to the blatant charges of nepotism that had surrounded his call to the 12. And so 
So people were recognizing it, of course, and yeah, yeah, some were speaking out. So blatant, and then he goes into family relationships. Um, I'm only going to just look at this. This is table four. Level of total family relationships to current or former general authorities. Joseph Smith, 44. Okay. Brigham Young, 28. John Taylor, 15. Wilford Woodruff, 10. Lorenzo Snow, 2. He had no sons, by the way. Joseph S. Smith, 18. See how it came back? Yeah. Heber J. Grant, 6. And so for a total of 123. Connections to those two families? Fam- or family uh, no, connections in general. Presidents. Yeah, those yeah. Presidents. All those presidents. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's got all these different charts that that uh, delineates it in a different way. The ancestry of current general authorities emphasizes the hierarchy's Utah origins. While more than half of these men were born in Utah, seventy-eight point two percent have roots in nineteenth-century Utah, which mm. brings us to. His conclusion here, in a fundamental way, the hierarchy's position, composition, I knew I didn't read that right. In a fundamental way, the hierarchy's composition continues to celebrate pioneer Mormon ancestry. The Utah birth of a majority of today's general authority still understates their shared pioneer heritage. In 1992, a former first presidency secretary publicly referred to the unofficial and loosely structured church family comprised of general authorities and their kin. Mm. Family interrelationships of Utah origin continue at extraordinary levels for the top leadership of the church whose membership resides primarily outside of the United States. Yeah, it's a good point, right? So for a long time, the almost all membership, well... All membership, early, early days, was in the States, right? And then as missionaries started to be sent out, you had some converts. Most of those converts would still move to the States for a long period, right? Definitely during uh, Brigham's kingdom period. (laughs) Uh, And then, yeah, over time, that's kind of changed. And, yeah, statistically speaking, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, yeah, for several years now, there's been more members outside of the U.S., than in the U.S., which is interesting phenomenon that makes sense if you think about just the population of the world. Um, but still, leadership is to that point that he makes almost completely Utahn, right? I mean, when was it when the first non-Utahn um, apostle, for example, came in? It's I don't know about yeah, apostle. One of their yeah. attempts to make it look like you know they were including the the world it mm-hmm. was with the uh appointment of george p lee right who's native american mm-hmm. who by the way was excommunicated right later from the church because he spoke out against this very thing mm. and they said stop and he didn't so mm. they excommunicated him there you go but yeah as far as another country I don't know for sure. They yeah. they got a, a couple, you know. Uh, Japanese came pre- in, right? Yeah, Japanese. Kikuchi. Uh, right off the bat. Yep. Kikuchi, that's yep. it. Kikuchi. But he wasn't then, an apostle. He was uh, 70, right? 
seven. No, yeah, yeah no apostles. Mm-hmm. No. But uh, yeah. and then they they called a Nigerian in mm-hmm. as a seventy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's been a, a one or two other black general authorities. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, that's not something I pay attention to. But well, yeah, yeah, the point is is well made and and cannot be. You can't escape your history that well or complete. I mean, there it is. That's what it is. So the other thing that hits home a little closer, and I don't know if you're ready to leave nepotism or not, but cronyism Mm -hmm. seems to uh, affect like a, a, an average member at a local level, even more so than nepotism. For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think back Dave, even to when we were growing up in the church and we saw it clearly and oh, yeah. it was more prevalent. It's interesting. It, it was more prevalent in some areas that we lived than others, which I guess is, you know, a comment on sociology and how, how things work and, you know, subcultures and all that kind of jazz. There was a family, for example, where you and I grew up David, in Southern California for quite a few years when we stayed in one place for more than two months. <laughs> um, yeah. For uh, where I grew up, most of my life, actually, except for a couple stints until I was about 14. And this was in the uh, the Carlsbad, California area. And in Carlsbad, the Packard family. Remember the Packards? I certainly do. Uh, the um, There were, oh, four brothers? I know three, because I, I worked with uh, Floyd. Yeah. Floyd was my stake president. He set me apart to go on a mission. And then I came back and worked with his brother Vaughn in mm-hmm. the stake mission presidency. And then I've, I'm forgetting the third brother. They all eventually became stake presidents and or mission presidents. And then two of them served consecutively as temple presidents, mm-hmm. one in LA and one in San Diego. So yeah, if you were a Packard, yeah. You already had a thumb up, if you will, mm-hmm. and getting your foot in the door to leadership. Now, these men, uh, education-wise, I mean, again, what qualifies you? Apparently, as we mentioned before, a high education, mm-hmm. you're successful businessmen, and number three, cronyism, it's who you know, not what you know. Yeah, and I'm going to look that up, rule by the educated. I didn't look that one up. Um, let's see. Plutocracy, definitely I saw as well. And you see that a lot. And again, that's ruled by the rich. You see that a lot in local manifestation as well. Uh, and there's no doubt. And like I was saying, you know, especially when you get to the stake presidency level, etc. I'm obviously being as David and I are almost always being right. I, I, I'm being objective or generally speaking, right? Or speaking of averages or whatever term you want to use, there's always exceptions. And the church has had to make those, especially as they've gone outside of the U.S. So you're going to have stake presidents, for example, in Africa, who are not nearly as well-to-do as those in the U.S. But And educated, because those those two go hand in hand, where there's money, there's education. Exactly. But relatively speaking... They are more well-to-do, generally, than the rest of the ward, right, or the rest of the stake. Um, and yeah. 
the teaching there, there, there's more than one thing going on, but one of them is if you are righteous, you will be made prosperous by the Lord. So a sign of your righteousness is your relative prosperity. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing in the church. And those who are wealthy will often tout that. They will walk around with their nose in the air to a certain degree and say, well, it's obvious how righteous I am. Look at how much money I have. Yeah, that's right. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, man, Dave, you just hit on a on a huge episode idea that I'm going to jot down here, and that is uh, prosperity preaching. And that's actually a concept that is hated by a lot of evangelical groups who think that some of these guys like... Uh, Who's the big one that's been big for a few years now? Written books. Um, oh, yeah, I can see his he's face. Younger. Be your best self. Be your best one self. Of his books. Oh, man. He's Olstein. Olstein, that's right. He's looked upon by a lot of these guys as a prosperity preacher, right? Um, and the interesting thing is if you bring that up, to members that this isn't this is an issue this is a a belief right we really believe that if you're obedient worthy etc god will bless you physically temporally as well as spiritually and i've had people speaking to that old codger that you talked about in your class uh. that took issue with your stats i've had people argue against that when i was teaching gospel doctrine or whatever and mm-hmm. i've pulled up the book of mormon hello <laughs> which is yeah the, it, the it, prosperity cycle in yes, the book of mormon that's exactly which is that what it the, is. the people are are given the gospel and because they're let's just call it righteous faithful mm-hmm. obedient whatever all those things they become prosperous which in turn creates pride yep yep and looking down the ramiumptimitis looking down at those of less status and, and less wealth yep. which brings about their ultimate downfall and then which they, puts them back in the position where it starts all over again yeah they humble themselves cuz they're cuz they're in a downfall they repent god blesses them and it starts all over again right and that's what the book of mormon <laughs> is completely about and yet people argued that that wasn't true anyway yeah we'll do a whole episode on that at some point it's fascinating but it relates a little to what we're talking about today, which is why I brought it up, because that's definitely found in the church, people who are rich and educated. Incidentally, I looked it up here, technocracy is ruled by the educated, uh, or technical yeah. experts, technocracy. Uh, interesting. So um, what are we even saying? So you say the—well, what I mean by that, like, is this unique to the church, etc.? Dave, I would say, obviously, no, right? You see this in corporations. You see this, in, you know, a lot of times, given minimum, you know, minimum requirements, you'll even see this in companies uh, where, you know, a CEO or a general manager or somebody who's on the board, his buddies that he's worked with for, you know, decades or who's in top positions, you know, cronyism again, friend. And I've seen nepotism actually at work as well. Oh, sure. Yeah, guy oh, hires yeah. his uh, a guy hires his uh, son-in-law or uh, a son or a daughter, whatever. Right, it happens. So it's not unique to the church, except I go back to the point that we we've made a few times, Dave. Uh, it shouldn't be happening 
you would think, in the only true church of God on the earth, right? Well, in, at the local level, there's there's an invisible ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is that if you, I guess you could call it climbing the rungs, you'll notice that, for instance, if you look at the history of a stake president, mm-hmm. he most likely was at some point, if he'd been in the church a while, was at some point a, a counselor in an elders quorum, became mm-hmm. the elders quorum president, mm-hmm. was then possibly a member of a bishopric, mm-hmm. became a bishop, probably placed on the high council, became a counselor in a stake presidency, and then a stake president. And you, of course, it's not always that way, but what's the percentage? High percentage. Where it happens at, what, is, what does that yeah. say? Is there any revelation there or is it just, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know, and not only that, not only kissing ass, which is what I'm talking about, but I like this guy's personality more than that asshole over there. I can't sit in long meetings with that guy. I'm going to call this guy. That's it. Bottom line. That's cronyism. Right. That's right. Yeah. Trust. Right. I trust you because you always say yes. Mm. And by the way, your political views and mine are the same. Oh. What the hell does that have to do with inspiration? Well, we're going to get along better. You use the same bait when you go fishing that I use. <laughs> yeah. You hit the same golf course. Yeah. Let's do it, man. Yep. And um, we've had yeah. business relations. This is another aspect of it. Ooh, I one. remember that time when you helped me, mm-hmm. you know, advance that business proposition. Oh, there's a ton of that, especially in Salt Lake. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, well, I, I recall you. Open that can of worms. No, no. I recall you, Dave, mentioning that Quinn, unless you've got some more excerpts to share specifically of his at the end, I think he gives a list I don't know if we're ready to go to the list yet, though. Did you have some other stuff that you wanted to throw out? No, I tr- okay. tried to, to yeah. keep it short. There's a, a ton of stuff there. Do us a uh, favor. Does he list in one of his charts um, current apostles, or at least current to when he wrote the book? No, this is only 1832 to Oh, that's right. That's right. It's that, it's that time period. He so just chopped that hundred years out and yeah yeah and let then, me but then he goes on as I read to comment that it's it stayed the same it's still happening sure sure I'll give a couple examples here guys uh, and you can dig this up online if you just type into a search engine uh, LDS Church nepotism just start with nepotism you'll get all sorts of results uh, and so. So here's just a couple examples, uh, just to kind of illustrate what we're talking about. All in the family, right? So Gordon B. Hinckley, it's a good place to start because we were just talking about him. First cousin of Joseph B. Worthland, and Worthland was also an apostle, right? Yeah. Uh, first cousin also of Richard B. Worthland, a nephew of former apostle Arza A. Hinckley, first cousin once removed of the wife of Neil A. Maxwell. So it starts it starts <laughs> oh describing the spaghetti, right? It figure all these spaghetti image here. First cousin twice removed of John H. Groberg. Third cousin once removed of James E. Faust. Why are we remembering these once or twice removed? Because, it, again, it all goes back far enough to the same families, right? That's why these distant 
connections show up as well as the closer ones. Thomas Monson, a third cousin once removed of the wife of M. Russell Ballard, third cousin once removed of Spencer J. Condy, uh, James E. Faust, first cousin twice removed of former apostle Richard R. Lyman, so back to the Lymans, third cousin of former 70s president Marion D. Hanks, third cousin once removed of Gordon B. Hinckley, so back to Hinckley. Um, so imagine a family reunion, I guess, is what I'm saying here. <laughs> And you've got all the apostles showing up, right? Because it's, hey, guys, now, how's grandma? Here's here's one of their, I guess, excuses, their, mm. their apologies. Well, yes, the facts show that we do favor certain bloodlines. Mm-hmm. There it is. Can't yeah. hide it. Family ties. But that's why you were chosen to be born into that bloodline. God knew that you would become a leader. So he placed you in those families. That's the lame ass yes, excuse that's right. that they give. That's right. Yeah. Which is problematic at best because then you start looking at this idea of foreordination or predestination is the extreme example mm-hmm. of that concept. And so if you've got a guy who's even a yes man and does everything right, Will he ever make apostle or prophet uh, if he doesn't have some blood relation going on? The answer is probably no, just because of the way this has been working, right? Um, Here's one I didn't know. So, (laughs) de-hoax, Dallin H. Hoax, second great-grand-nephew of Martin Harris. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Book of Mormon Witness, right? Martin Harris. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, I had no idea he was that, related to Harris. Yeah. I don't even know yeah. who a relationship that far removed from me. But you know, they're they're gonna show the tie. I, I wonder how many thousands of hours D. Michael Quinn bought, you know, brought into oh, making know. all these connections and everything. Yeah. And that's that's just that point of it, you know, mm-hmm. the, the nepotism. The cronyism, the plutocracy, all of these things should have no effect, No, should not factor in at all to a a church, if it is a church, being run by revelation. Mm. So it it clearly is not. And the the list I was talking about is listing all these aspects of what the church is. What we have, and I guess I have to add to the list now, Mm -hmm. is a hierarchical oligarchical, geritocratic, plutocratic, nepotistic, cronyistic corporatocracy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the church. Wow. Uh, yes. Now I'm missing some because you brought some more up. Oh, so. no, that's all good, man. Um, Technocratic. And- yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. No, that's awesome. Um, yeah, and that's the way it is, right? It, it, taking it full circle, why does this matter? Because of what the church claims. None of what we talk about in these podcast episodes would really matter a whole lot if it didn't conflict with what the doctrine of this true church is supposed to be, right? That's that's really that's a, most of what we're talking about, right? It, so again, yeah. biting themselves in the ass. Yes, uh, contradicting the truth claims that they're making, none of what we just described here today is evidence of actual revelation 
taking place. And, and that's the point, right? So yeah, Dave, uh, man, I just, I, I, you know, we're at 50 minutes, which is a a record of (laughs) (laughs) minimalist. Uh, but I, especially under cronyism and, you know, the personal examples and I, I can't help but think, you know, to what degree did that make me wonder as an active member, mm-hmm. uh, and as I got into leadership in a minimal way as a, as a counselor in a bishopric, mm-hmm. but that gave me access to meetings and other things where I saw even more of this mm-hmm. for myself, mm-hmm. instead of hearing about it secondhand, I just, uh, wonder why wasn't any of that enough to make me sincerely doubt, hmm. um, you know, the authenticity of revelation in the church? Do you see my point? Yes, we I do. brought this up with other aspects. We knew about it as yeah. active members. We That's knew right. about historical problems. We knew about a lot of shit, yeah. but it wasn't enough to make us sincerely take a look at it. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. Until yeah. it was enough. <laughs> Until the shelf broke, as they say, right? Yes, yeah. Kept tripping over the piles of shit under the rug. <laughs> there it is, yeah. Damn, I so can't get a, in and out of the door anymore without tripping door. over those piles under the rug. That's a heavy, heavy-ass yeah. concrete block that went up on that shelf. That's a big one. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, I guess we just were able to say, well, you know... It doesn't matter. I don't know. I, I'm trying to think back of what how, what I thought about that. Yeah, that's, now I, it, yeah. you know, it's so blatant. It's just it's that exercise in cognitive dissonance and the power there it is. the power yeah. that cognitive dissonance can have. You know, where what you see or find out, or in this case, well, what you see, right, as an example in front of you all the time, it it is dissonance. It creates a a difference in your mind between what you believe should be happening or what you believe is true in this case based uh you know leadership based on revelation is the doctrine that you believe so there's a dissonance there right between what you're seeing and what you believe and so you have to make it make sense one of them is wrong it's got to just oh it's got to be the way i'm seeing this is wrong or it's really not this way right it really is still revelation and then and then when you yourself become involved in it uh, as in giving blessings, uh, ordaining, setting apart, especially as a member of a bishopric, I don't know how many settings apart I I was voice for, mm-hmm. and blessings, and hundreds, mm-hmm. and the claim of, yeah, I what did I say? I don't even know what I said because I it, they weren't my words. No, (laughs) you know, lying for the Lord again and and knowing, I mean, really, come on. You just learn how to make, give a nice flowery blessing. Mm -hmm. You just, you learn certain words and they are, they're repeated. Yeah. uh, For in a large part uh, from blessing to blessing, a lot of the same verbiage is used and the same promises are made and, Mm. Uh, it's just, 
Yeah. Pretty sad. Well, you know, <laughs> Dave, I mean, I can end my thoughts on this with a personal note to you and I. We have a close family relation of ours who, in his priesthood ordination, I believe, when he Your received, elder. yeah, yes. when he received the Melchizedek priesthood, part of that ordination, the revelation from God, as it were, <laughs> uh, was actually kind of like almost a patriarchal blessing type of a thing, where, as you recall, he was told that he would eventually become one of the Twelve. And he hasn't, and he's getting on with age, and uh, I think he's between our ages, right? He's getting on. He's Um, three years younger than me. Yeah. and So close, right? And um, hasn't happened, actually hasn't had... Hasn't even, I don't know, tell me if you know this is wrong. I don't think he's even been in a bishopric. No, no, he's been a counselor in two bishoprics. Okay, but not but, a bishop. Okay. But so, not a bishop. Yeah, no. definitely not stake presidency. By now would have at least been at the stake presidency or beyond level. If, 70, 70th yeah. general authority, something. Mm-hmm, at least, yeah. if he was on the path to apostleship, right? And I talked to him about it once, and you know this conversation, Dave. I shared it with you. And he was in tears at one point in the conversation about this issue. And he literally, I kid you not, part of his tearful comments at at that time was the plutocracy in his case that he saw, at least in the area he lives and guys he knows in the church who've been put into leadership positions because they were rich, uh, or who they knew, right, cronyism, etc., and and he felt, he, he saw it blatantly, and it was actually put him in tears that he had this, you know, promise, and it wasn't coming to pass. So, in, in these niche cases, right, uh, this is actually a f- causing mental anguish for some people, <laughs> In the church, who, uh, yeah, it you know. ran his whole life because his pursuit was to become wealthy yeah. his entire life. The reason for that was it looks like all the general authorities are fairly wealthy. Mm-hmm. If I'm not, I don't have a shot at this. And unfortunately, a lot of his pursuits failed in, yeah. in terms of amassing wealth. Yeah, uh, but I, I'm hoping that he's come to some terms with it where he can have some peace. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, it's obviously not going to happen. Why can't, can you have just peace right here, right now in whatever your current situation is? Isn't that what all this religion BS is supposed to produce ultimately Mm. is peace, inner peace. Yeah. Isn't it? You would, yeah, I would, you would think, I mean, that's, uh, harkens back to, to Yahshua ben Joseph, a.k.a. Jesus' teachings, right? It was about peace and being happy and so forth. And you see the opposite in the church. Uh, and, and uh, you know, people striving for this uh, unachievable goal, chasing after the carrot, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. So, all right, guys. Well, let's wrap it up because our bantering took it to almost an hour here, Dave. <laughs> well, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. I wanted to say in closing, I'm known yeah. as the peace guy. And what I mean by that is 
I'm kind of looked at as an old hippie at work and yeah. <laughs> and my neighborhood and other, I'm always the guy that when somebody's leaving or I, I'm saying goodbye, I'll throw out the the V, yeah. the two fingers, the peace sign. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot. There's the the horns, the heavy metal sign. And, <laughs> other ways there's that there's a certain one that involves a middle finger there's all these ways of communicating i'm the peace guy but yeah. for me it's real yeah that's all i wish upon you and or anyone is peace ah amen brother to use a uh, a wrongly pronounced word that's been adopted in the mormon culture right <laughs> amen. Uh, uh, the the real word being amen which is hebrew right uh, so let it be. Um, but yes, uh, concur, obviously, 100%, bro. And um, you can't have peace when you have these contradictory teachings and, and activities going on. And this is this is one of them, right? So out with it and hopefully away with it at some point in history. I don't know. Oh, it, we it'll can happen. Hope. Maybe we can not hope. in our lifetime, but... yeah. All right, guys. Hey, wrapping up another episode with you. Take care, and we will uh, chat with you later. Love on you.